It's wonderful to be here. Now, we're going into the book of Genesis. Everybody needs a little attitude adjustment now and then. Amen? And there's nothing that adjusts our attitude like the Word of God. A little boy came in the back door. And by the way, I think I'm on. Am I correct? Okay, good. Uh, A little boy came in the back door of his house, and his mother was sitting in the living room talking to the pastor. The pastor had come. He didn't know the pastor was there. He thought his mother was alone in the house. So he's a little five-year-old. He came in the back door. Mama! She said, son, I'm up here in the front room. He said, he's walking through, you know, stomping with his little cowboy boots on. He said, mama, I killed the frog. She said, you did? He said, yeah, mama, I killed the frog. I took a stick, and I hit it, and I hit it, and I hit it, and I hit it. And then uh, it began to quiver. And after a while, I took a big, uh, uh, big rock and smashed it. his head, kind of spread out. And, and then he, he keeps walking through the house, coming to where mama is. And then he said, I took my cowboy boot and I stomped it, and its inside just shot right out. And about that time, he walked through and saw the pastor, and he said, And the poor thing passed away. <laughs> and so. <clears throat> what you call a little attitude adjustment there. Uh, Genesis 13, please, in your Bibles. I'm going to bring you a, I'm going to read a very familiar portion of Scripture, and uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to bring a very unfamiliar message. And so here it is from Genesis 13, verse number 1. Everybody stand up, please, as we read the Bible together. Thank God we've got a Bible to read. Thank God we know that we stand squarely upon the jot and tittle, perfect, inspired, inerrant word of God. Thank God we do. I mean, we're not looking for the word of God. We found it. We have the, we have the perfect word of God, the verbal, plenary, inspired word of God uh, in our hand. We don't have the closest thing to it. We got the real deal right here. Uh, this in this King James Bible. I'm glad if I didn't have that if I didn't have that kind of authority, I wouldn't have much authority to preach tonight. But I'm glad that I do. And here we open to Genesis 13, verse number one. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. Verse 5, Lot also, which went with Abram, had her flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. Verse 8, And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not, and he says this, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou take to the left hand, I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, and I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, for years, For years, I preached that Lot went to Sodom because all of a sudden he got his eyes on money. But that had absolutely nothing to do with why he went to Sodom. That was the fallout of it, but that was not the cause of it. That had nothing to do with the cause of it. And I'm about to show you from the Bible why he went to Sodom and Gomorrah 
And when you see it in your Bible, you're going to be like me. You're going to say, how did I miss that? I mean, there it is like a dead fish laying out on the sand. How did I miss that? And uh, it is contained in two little words here. And once you see it, you'll say, of course, there it is. He went to Sodom as the land of Zor. He went, he went down into the Egypt fleshy part of the world, the chapter before this. But he came out. And so why did he pitch his tent towards Sodom? I'm going to tell you as soon as we pray. I learned some things that changed my life and that will go with me for life. Safeguards, mileposts, anchors, if you please. And I believe that you'll see them tonight too. And they will be a great anchor for you as well. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you'll bless us now. And thank you for the privilege to preach the Bible. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll show us the great things of God. What a wonderful thing, Lord, to preach a Bible that we can trust, to know that we're doing the right thing. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll you'll accept our gratitude for having the authority of the Word of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated, please. Well, we cut Lot too short. Whenever we think of Lot, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the honest truth is, Lot showed a dedication that very few people do. When Abraham got the call of God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, that rich, fertile place, and go out and look for a city whose builder and maker was God, to be a vagabond, to be a vagabond out there like a nut, not even knowing where he was going, the Bible says, living in a tent instead of one of those beautiful houses down in that fertile valley where he came from, guess who went with him? Lot. And the Bible says that Lot went with Abraham. We're led to believe Lot lived a holy life because why would you want to go with Abraham if you didn't? We're led to believe that Lot prayed, but why would you want to hang around Uncle Abraham, a very strong praying man, unless you didn't? We're led to believe that Lot loved the Word of God and the direction of God and the people of God. Why would you want to be with Abraham? As a matter of fact, Abraham wouldn't allow you to travel with him. He wouldn't allow you to be with him. He he wouldn't keep that kind of company. And so uh, we cut Lot short. And uh, so he's walking with God. He's walking with Abraham and he's walking with God. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this beautiful and wonderful walk with God, he defects and defers to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did he go? It's contained in two little words, and I'll show you those words. You remember the strife we just read about between the herdmen of Lot's cattle and Abraham's cattle? And the Bible says in verse 8, And Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee, and there's the two words, separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take to the left hand, I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here's what he said. He said, Lot, we walked together. We fellowshiped together. We prayed together. We've done right together. We've sought God together. And we've sought for a city whose builder and maker is God together. And we've laid in tents at night and praised God together. But we can't walk together anymore, Lot. Now, there's a lot of grass out here and a lot of prairie out here, and we got a lot of cattle, and God has blessed us. You choose first. Whatever you choose, you may have, then I'll take what's left. And if you go this direction, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. But whatever we do, we cannot walk together anymore. We cannot be together anymore. 
in the very next verse, and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now look up here at me. Listen to me. Lot walked with Abraham until Abraham said, Lot walked with God and walked with Abraham and lived holy and lived right and prayed and sought God's will and did right and chose right until Abraham said, we got to part. And the very next verse, he, he lifted up his eyes and looked towards Sodom. Why? And if you, to understand why he did that, you've got to understand this. Lot walked with God because Lot walked with Abraham. Lot prayed because Abraham prayed. Lot lived holy because Abraham lived holy. Lot sought the will of God because Abraham sought the will of God. Lot left all he had to go out and be a vagabond for God because Abraham did. He had the stuff. Lot had the stuff and it was real but he wasn't producing it. Abraham was producing it. You see, he, he, was, he was a parasite Christian. He was living under the influence, the power, the direction, the leadership of a man of God who was getting his power and direction and leadership and holiness direct from God. We're talking about source here. The source of Lot's spirituality was a man. It wasn't God. He was in the system but when the system became annihilated and when, a- when Lot could not walk with Abraham anymore, he was a dead fish. I mean, he was goner. He was plugged into Abraham, but he was not plugged into God. And I bring you a message tonight entitled, Where Are You Plugged In? Where Are You Plugged In? Um, you know, I was thinking here, I go out on a cold, cold morning in Washington, Iowa. It's so cold, the politicians have their hands in their own pockets. Now, that's getting pretty chilly, boys, you, you got to say. And, and, uh, and I go to start my car. It's 10 below zero. I saw it 28 below zero on the thermometer there. I've got a picture on my phone right now with minus 25 on our bank. Uh, there five minutes from where I live. We're talking about cold. And, uh, and I go out where it's 10 below zero, 30, 40 mile an hour north wind, dropping that chill factor down to 50 below zero. And you turn the key, and here's what you hear. I mean, the oil in that engine is like molasses. I mean, you turn the key and it goes, whoa, whoa, click, 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 click. And you think, oh boy. This is where I, and look up, somebody left the dome light on in the car. Now, you try that in warm weather, you're just fine. That dome light will burn all night long off of that big battery, and you can fire that thing up the next morning, but don't try that at 20 below zero and 50 below zero chill factor. Don't try it with the wind blowing. You're going to be in trouble. And so you think, oh, my, I'm going to be late for work. What am I going to do? Hey, there's Brother Allen. Hey, Brother Allen, you have a pair of jumper cables? And he said, yes. And he said, I need a jump, Allen. So Allen comes over, and we hook uh, one end of those jumper cables on my dead battery. And we hook the other end on Allen's good battery. And we make sure this anchored real good. And Allen, Allen says, now, wait a minute, preacher. Don't start that engine yet. Let me start mine. So he cr- cranks up his car. He said, don't touch it. Don't just let it build up. Don't touch it. And all of a sudden he says, hit it. Man, I turn that key. I said, Alan, I've got power to spare. Man, I'm well. I'm healed. Everything's fine. I un- you just let me unhook those jumper cables 
and turn my engine off and see how much power I've got. Everything I just received was not from my battery. It was from his battery. I'm drawing power from another source. I may be impressed with how my engine starts. I may be exhilarated over how quick it starts and how it runs, but it's not my power. It's somebody else's power, and I'm not getting it from my battery. I'm getting it from his battery, and I'm telling you the honest truth. It's amazing how many people are parasite Christians. They have the stuff. They're living the life. They're walking the walk. They're talking the talk. But they're plugged into people and their source is not, they're not breaking through and walking with God for themselves. And I'm telling you the honest truth. You know, uh, I, uh, Isaiah 29, 13, and you gotta, you gotta be spiritual to catch the, the gist of this verse. And there God complained. He said, their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Men teaches them how to pray to me. Men teaches them how to fear God. I want them to break through and let me teach them. I want to fellowship with them. I want to lead them. I want to show them things from the Bible. The Bible says receive with meekness the engrafted word. That's not just a preached word that your pastor preaches or the taught word that your teacher teaches. The engrafted word, the word of God that actually becomes a part of you when you actually realize that I am living this, this has crawled into my heart and mind and I'm living this word of God. I'm talking about plugged into God, not just plugged into me. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, now watch it, this is not contradictory, watch me now. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse one, number one to the church at Corinth, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, I'm following Christ. You just got saved. As a matter of fact, they not only were young Christians, they were very carnal Christians. Now, he says, look, don't, don't do what you see around you. Do like I do. Follow me. I'm following the Lord. Now, you follow me. Then later, here's what he said. He said in Galatians 4:19, my little children, of whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed in you. Of whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed. He wasn't talking about salvation. He had already travailed and they got saved. He had already prayed in the power of God, the preaching and the witnessing of the word of God, and they trusted him. He said, now I'm praying that Christ will be formed in you, that all that you do will not just be because of me, not just you're following me and you're, you're listening to me and you're emulating Paul, but like John the Baptist said when his disciples followed him and they came to a point, but there they saw Jesus and John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, get your eyes off of me, get them on Christ. And I'm telling you the honest truth. It's amazing. It's amazing. At some point, if you are a laster, if you can last in these troublesome days are here, filling men's hearts with fear, freedoms we all hold dear now. It's like, we don't know what we're up against. And I'm optimistic about heaven and I'm optimistic about the fact God's going to take care of me. But right now at this point in life, I'm not as optimistic about America and where we're going in this country as I have been. Now, you just, I'm not going to be a downer and I'm not going to, you, you heard me preach several times. My messages are not uh, glum. My messages are happy. I'm heaven 
heaven bound with the hammer down. I mean, I'm having a time, but I'm telling you what, if we don't get to pray and if we don't get something turned around in this country, we are in for dark days. And, and you know we are. And I'm telling you the truth. We're going to separate the men from the boys. We're going to find out who is just plugged into church and plugged into preacher and plugged into teacher and plugged into people or who actually had broken through and was walking with God for themselves. Uh, I'm telling you something. The Bible says, receive with meekness the engrafted word. You know, some years ago, and Alan and Ellen attended our church for quite some time there as they ministered mainly at Cedar River Baptist Camp. And they sang in our big ladies, ladies conference, I believe. You were, we featured you in our ladies conference and you sing. And, uh, but some years ago, and this may have happened when they were there, we had a very dedicated inner circle group of young people. Many of them went to a Christian school in, in a distant town. We sent the bus down and bust them down. Many of them were homeschooled, and there was never any strife or difference or discord between the two elements in our church. We just made sure there wasn't. And, uh, but at any rate, we had an inner circle group of young people, teenagers, and uh, they were faithful. They were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They also came on Wednesday visitation and because so many of them were homeschoolers, we had an activity for the young people every Saturday. Now they were on soul winning on Wednesday night they, before service. They'd get out of school, they'd come and go out soul winning every week. And we, they, they were very faithful. Well, we had three boys that were out of very inner circle dedicated families. And these three boys were uh, always there. And they looked the part and acted the part and they were, they were plugged in all the way. And one night, these three boys disappeared. They knew they'd run off together because all three of them disappeared at the same time out of three different dedicated families. It was three days later before they found them. One of the fathers found them and he told me about it. And he told me what he found when he found him. He said, it was in an upstairs apartment. I think it was in Kelowna, Iowa. And he said, not far from our town. And he said he had a lead. And when he walked in, there they were, all three of them. And they had drank some beer and done some other stupid things. And he said, I wasn't angry. He said, as a matter of fact, I, was, I became broken later about it. But he said, if anything, the word is confused. He said, I, he said, I said, boys, what in this world could have ever possessed you to do such a thing? And one of the boys spoke up, and here's what he said. He said, we'll tell you exactly why we did it. We did it because we got sick and tired of being who we were not. And they told the truth. They got sick and tired of being who they were not. They were plugged into the church. They, were, they didn't have to be in the church. And some of them old enough, they could have chosen their own way, but they, they were chose to be in the church and chose to have Christian friends, chose to go soul winning, chose to be faithful, chose to be in Sunday school, chose to be on youth activities. But they were plugged into the pastor and plugged into the church and plugged into the youth activity and plugged into the soul winning program and plugged into the dress standards and plugged into the conduct standards, but they were not plugged into God. They were getting it from us, but they weren't getting it from God. And when they got unplugged, they were history. They were history. It's the most dangerous thing you ever saw in your life. It's so dangerous. 
So there's some here that are actually deceived. You're, you're controlled by the atmosphere. It's popular to do right in this church. It's popular to dress right. It's popular to act right. It's popular not to go certain places and to go certain places. And we're glad about that. But at the same time, are you plugged into the system? Are you plugged into God? Um, many people not aware of the fact that they're not. You know, um, Jeremiah, he said in Jeremiah 20 and verse number seven, I said, I'll speak no more in his name. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of giving myself to a people that don't appreciate it. I'm tired of people wiping their feet on me when I killed myself to preach and nobody's listening and nobody's obeying and nobody's doing it and I'm going to quit on God. God, you can get yourself another boy. I'm tired of this and I'm done. You say, what was wrong with him? He was normal. He was normal. Uh, We all come to this stage in life from time to time when we just... We're tired of it. Want to give up? Man asked me one time, how did you stay 38 years, start a church with four men and their wives, saw hundreds of people saved and hundreds attending every week. Alan and Ellen were there. They know. They said, how in the world did you stay 38 years without wanting to just quit? I said, I didn't stay 38 years without just wanting to quit. I wanted to quit. You don't know how bad I was. You don't know how discouraged I got sometimes. You don't know how much I just wanted to fly away and be at rest, as David said. But you know what Jeremiah said? He said, I'm going to quit. God, you can get yourself another boy. But his word was as a fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Brother, when you got something in your bones that'll keep you going when nothing else with the, listen, you go to stand at a place of temptation. Young people, you listen to me. We got a bunch of them here tonight. You go to stand at a place of temptation beyond the greatest sermon you ever heard in your life. You go to stand at a place of temptation beyond the reach of the greatest prayer that any, your mother and daddy ever prayed for you in their life or the preacher ever prayed for you. You go to stand at a place of temptation beyond the most powerful church service you were ever in and the greatest message you ever heard in your life and I can't be there and mama can't be there and daddy can't be there and if you're not there with God, you're history. You're gone. I mean, you're just gone. I said I speak no more in his name but he said I couldn't stop. I had the engrafted word of God. Uh, Genesis 37, the Bible teaches us, uh, Genesis 39, that, and I referred to it this week. I think I was talking to the men in the conference. Um, Joseph was approached by a very wicked woman and uh, wanting him to go into sin with her. Do you think Joseph said, woman, I can't do this? I mean, you don't know who my daddy was. My daddy was Jacob. My daddy saw the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder. My daddy was a patriarch. My daddy was in the lineage of the great through whom came the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Woman, you don't know who you're talking to. I can't, look, woman, you have no idea. No, that wasn't strong enough. That wasn't going to handle it. Because you see, daddy was dead. Mama was gone. And he needed something beyond the most powerful influence of his mother and father. And young people, I'm going to tell you something. It is a living disgrace how many young people come out of churches like this as teenagers, get married, and five to eight years later, you can't even find them in church. They don't even go to church. 
I've been watching this thing for years. It's grievous. It's totally grievous. Christian education and all that goes with it. Uh, you see, Ron Howard founded the, uh, the educational system, uh, Christian uh, CLA, ACE, Accelerated Christian Education. When I started the Marion Avenue Baptist Church a year and a half after I started it, I flew to Texas, Waco, Texas, and took my ACE training as a pastor so I'd know how to start an ACE school in my church. Well, God directed otherwise. I never did start that. But I was very familiar with it, and I was very, very um, uh, convinced that Ron Howard was right when he said, we're going to introduce revival to America. We're going to put Christian schools in the churches, and we're going to bring Christian education and the teaching of the Word of God right to the people in the churches where the families can put their children in the Christian school, and we're going to turn America back to God, and we're going to see revival across the land. Well, here's the good news. I'll give you the good news and the bad news. The good news is he did put Christian. There is no organization, there's no 10 organizations has put Christian education in the churches any more than, than CLA, uh, than ACE and, uh, and, and uh, Ron Howard. But revival didn't come. Revival, did, we're, we're not, we hadn't seen revival. I was talking about that was 48 years ago when he made the statement. We have not seen revival in America. As a matter of fact, we're in the worst shape in this country we've ever been in the history of our country. You say, what went wrong? You can plug young people into Christian education and you can plug them into Christian parents and you can plug them into good churches, but until they get plugged into God, they're history. They just are. They just are. The Bible tells us, you know, that you're going to have to be plugged into the source. Uh, Mount Rainer National Park. Somebody was telling me they went through there and the park rangers begged the people, please don't feed the deer. And the people thought, well, they're afraid we'll poison the deer like some nut would, you know. And, and he said, no, no, that's not it. We're not afraid you're going to poison the deer, though it could happen. That's not our motive. They said, here's our motive. This is tourist season. It's beautiful weather. Mount Rainer National Park is a beautiful, one of the beautiful parks in America. And he said, when you come through, if you feed the deer, the deer come right up to your car. They'll eat right out of your hand. And he said, they will enjoy that. But if you feed the deer, they said, this winter, when snow's 22 inches deep, this winter, when the tourists are not here, this winter, when you're not here, nobody else is here, those deer, instead of being on the back 40, clawing down to get a root out of the ground to stay alive or eating the bark off of a tree back there, they're going to be standing out here waiting on you and you're not going to be here and they're going to starve to death and freeze to death and die. Now, we've hand-fed these young people and we've hand-fed these children with Christian schools and homeschools and I'm for that. I will not turn my children over to the Philistines to educate. I will not. I don't believe in it. Uh, it's wrong. I would not give my children to the Philistines to educate any more on Monday morning than I would on Sunday morning. I mean, it's Sunday school, Monday school, Tuesday school, Wednesday school, Thursday school, Friday school, Saturday, and Sunday school. 
And, and I wouldn't. But at the same time, I'm going to tell you something. If they don't get plugged into God, we're going to be history. And we, go, we need a revival in that area. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> one day, Reldon Gerard knocked on my door. Deacon. He said, Pastor, what I, before I tell you what I came to tell you, who cut your European mountain ash down? I said, what do you mean who cut? He said, come out here, let me show you. Beautiful tree, ornamental tree, European mountain ash. Had those large clusters of berries or balls that turned bright orange in the fall. An ornamental, beautiful tree. I inherited it with a house. Couldn't have even afforded to buy a tree like that. They're very expensive. And it was right out in the, my flat backyard. And they'd cut it off so flesh with the ground, you could have took a rotary lawnmower and run right over the stump and never touched it. And the tree was beautiful and prolific and perfect and green and, and leaves and just growing and the little new shoots out at the end. I was sick when I saw it. And I said, Reldon, who cut my tree down? I don't know. I just happened to see it and I pulled up. And I just walked out and I thought, Lord, who would have wanted to be that mean cut? I didn't have a child at that time that I thought was old enough to have cut it down. And so I said, well, what did they use to cut it down? And I got down like this to see what they used to cut it down. And I could not believe what I saw. The outer circumference of that tree, about this much, or all the way around the outside of the, of the tree bark, was perfect. The part that brought the minerals and the nutrients uh, and the moisture up the tree to produce all that foliage and those berries. And by the way, if you know your botany, that's how it is. It's the outer inch that actually transmits that. It's not the inner, it's the outer inch of the, of the, of the tree itself inside. And it was perfect and doing its job. But the inside of the tree, the part that holds the tree upright. A worm had got in there and bred and eaten the guts out of that tree till it was just like mushroom. You could stick your thumb through it. And one night when the wind got just right, and it didn't take much of a wind at all, it just happened to be that the tree had reached that condition, she popped off. And you know, you look at that and you think, the thing is fruitful. The thing is fruitful. You know, uh, but what's on the inside? What's on the, uh, years ago, let me share this with you. Years ago, uh, there was a, uh, the seagull started, started dying at Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The seagull started dying. And I mean, they were dying by the hundreds and these environmentalists and animal wackos were having seizures trying to figure out who's killing all these seagulls, you know. So they gathered them up and they ran them through the lab to see what poison they were using to kill these seagulls. And what they found out was shocking. They found out these seagulls were dying of malnutrition. Well, that didn't make sense because if there's any creature in the world that has an abundance of food, it's a seagull. I mean, every time the tide goes out, the beach is laying foot, and they eat everything. They're worse than a buzzard. They eat everything in the world. They, they about eat the shells of those mussels and things. And, and they just sand crabs, whatever they can pick up. They just run up and down the beach and take swoops and pick it up. And they've got an abundance. And not only that, but the seagulls down the seaboard all the way down to Key West and all the way up to Savannah, Georgia, these seagulls 
with the same food supply were proliferating and doing great right up and down the seaboard in front of them. And they could not figure out why in the world are these seagulls dying of malnutrition with an abundance of food right there on the beach. And then they found out the answer. For years, there had been a shrimp port there. And at the same time, every day, these big shrimping boats would come in. And when they did, uh, they, they would filter through and take out what they wanted and dump the rest of that stuff. They had dredged off the ocean floor overboard, hundreds of pounds of it. And when they did, same time, every day, the sky would get black with seagulls. And they would come and converge on that. And in just a matter of a couple of hours, they would, they would devour hundreds of pounds of stuff. Well, in time, competition ran that company out of business. And the food wasn't there. And they discovered they had raised a generation of seagulls that did not know how to find their own food. And I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid we've raised a generation of seagulls that do not know how to find their own food. Find their own food. And I'm telling you something. Are you plugged into people? Are you plugged into God? Here's another one. Let me give you this. Boy, I discovered this accidentally. I was teaching a series on the charismatic movement one time, and I came across this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it'd be worth your time just turn over there. Why don't you turn 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, while you get there, let me just say a word to you uh, about this text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And I've already said that Corinth, was, they were, these people were saved, but they were very carnal. And of course, uh, they, he said five times in three verses, are you not carnal? Ye are carnal. And, uh, I mean, the, uh, fornication was reported commonly among them. But I want you to notice in chapter 1 of First Corinthians and verse number 4, here's what he said. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you're enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now, we won't take the time now, but I, I discovered this in my study of the charismatic movement. If you go over to chapter 12, 13, and 14 of this book, you will find that these two things, uh, the gift of utterance and the gift of knowledge, were two sign gifts given to Israel along with the gift of healing, the gift of helps, the gift of tongues. And these were sign gifts given to Israel. And, uh, and I won't go into all the depth of, of when they passed as signed gifts and, and so forth and so on, but I will tell you this right now. Here's what he said. Verse 7, So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what he said to the church at Corinth. He said, look, you don't lack anything. You got all the gifts. And, all of the, and if you go over to chapter 12, 13, and 14, you would see all those gifts in operation right in the church. But at the same time, he says, you got all these spiritual gifts. He turns right around in the next verse. Look down at verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you. He said, you're not getting along with each other. Verse 11, for it had been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chilo, that there are contentions among you. You're fighting, you're bickering, you're fussing with each other. How bad was it? Now turn the page and look in verse 1 of chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Look in verse 3. For ye are yet carnal. Look in the last part of verse 4. Are ye not carnal? 
How carnal were they? I just mentioned a while ago, look in chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you. And such a fornication, there's not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. He said, you're as carnal as the devil. And man, when he said that, all of a sudden, I wanted to say, hey, hey God, Paul, stop. You just got done saying these people had all the spiritual gifts. And I see them in operation in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Now you're going to turn right around and say they're carnal as the devil. Call them carnal four, three or four times in, in three verses. Living with their mama-in-law, committing fornication. Hey, God, which is true? Are they, are they running at an all-time high in their spiritual gifts? Or are they running at an all-time low and carnal as the devil? And I found an answer that changed my life. Both were true. They were running at an all-time high in their spiritual gifts. They were running at an all-time low in their spirituality. Watch it, watch it, watch it. Don't miss it. Because spiritual gifts and spirituality are entirely two separate things. You can be running at an all-time high in your spiritual gift. You can be running at an all-time low in your spirituality. You see, you cannot see my spirituality. You're not looking at it. You may judge me as being a spiritual person. I don't know whether you do or not. It doesn't matter to me. God knows. But you, 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 if you judge me as being spiritual, it's just your guess. You can't see my spirituality. All you can see is my spiritual gift. If I've got a spiritual gift, you can see that. My spiritual gift may have been reflected on the numbers we put on the board when, I was, when we were building the Marion Avenue Baptist Church, my spiritual gift, but my spirituality was not, was not fulfilled in that. My spiritual gift is outward. My spirituality is inward. My spiritual gift is public. My spirituality is private. My spiritual gift is what God gave me. He, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. I don't know of a time in my life I was ever called to preach, and I don't have time to expound that. I know I'm called. I know I'm called, but, but I just started preaching when I got saved and couldn't get stopped, and here I am, so I'm sorry. Uh, somebody asked Dr. John Rice one time, said, Dr. Rice, you don't know of a time in your life you was ever called to preach. Um, what are you going to do if you stand before God? And God says, I never called you to preach. Dr. Rice said, well, I guess I'd just say, God, forgive me for the thousands I've seen saved and the hundreds I've seen answer the call of the ministry and the books that I've written as transformed lives. I guess God would forgive me for it. I imagine he would, don't you? But here's what I'm saying. You cannot see my spirituality. You know, I told my wife this day that I had no idea I'd go and preach this sermon. My wife knows that. I have another sermon. Matter, matter of fact, I had it narrowed down to four. And I told her, Ten minutes before the pastor introduced me, I said, just pray for me. I've got it narrowed down between uh, where are you plugged in and uh, the hedge. Yeah. And I said, I said, I don't know which one I'm going to do. And so I didn't know. But I told my wife today, not, I hadn't even thought about this sermon. I told my wife today, I said, Alan Ives and his wife, of course, Alan and Ellen are the most spiritual people I know in the world. I, I, we, I just hope that someday I could achieve under half the, the dedication and spirituality of it. It exudes, it, you can just see it. And, and, and I really feel he's spiritual, but I can't see it. Oh, he's got a gift. Oh, does he have a gift? Boy, does he have a gift, and I mean it's a gift. If it hadn't have been a gift, no matter how great he was, he'd have wandered off in contemporary country or something by now. But he's been all of these years. How many years have you been singing for God, uh, Alan? 
56 years. Years upon years upon years upon years upon years. Hey, look, but you cannot see his spirituality. His wife may can. You can't see my spirituality. Nobody here knows whether I'm spiritual or not. That woman with the red jacket's got a good idea, but, uh, but, but she's the only one you cannot see. Your spiritual gift is, is, is here, and your spirituality is here, and it is so hard to keep your spirituality up to your spiritual gift. You see, this is easy. My spiritual gift is easy. I mean, I love it. That's the reason he drove 900 and some miles just to sing to you. I don't know how in the world he's going to pay his bill to get home. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I, uh, and, and, and it's easy. Alan and Ellen can sing. I could call him three in the morning and say, Alan, we need to go sing. Where are we going? Hey, let's go. You know, it's easy. You, sh- you call my number at four o'clock in the morning. Say, Brother Brown, I got a preaching engagement. They want you to preach. I mean, I jump out of bed and run out in the street in my pajamas on or something. I- I'm just saying, you know, uh, I-, I love to preach. Can you tell I love to preach? Can you tell I'm having a good time right now? I love to preach. I'll preach at the drop of a hat. And if you don't drop the hat, I will just so I get to preach. I love to preach. It's fun. That's my spiritual gift. My spirituality, that's hard. It's fun to jump up and preach. It's easy to jump up and preach. It's hard to say, Rhonda, I didn't speak right to you this morning. I, I was a little ill, and it was me. It wasn't you. It was nothing you did. I was out of sort about something else, and you said something, and I was rather snappy, and I want you to forgive me. I hate that. I don't want to do that. I'm too full of pride to do that. But I've got to do that. If I walk with God, I must purge myself. I mean, it's, it's no fun to get down to pray and you think, Lord, I thought a th- thought today I shouldn't think. Or I had an attitude today, Lord, that I should not have had. I misjudged somebody. I don't know if they are like that. I just judge them as being this when they may not be like, oh, God, forgive me, purge me, cleanse me, oh, God. I hate to have to deal with stuff like that. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes work to really plow deep inside it. Make sure that you can sing with meaning, nothing between my soul and the Savior, nothing between so his face I can't see. It takes work, and you got to swallow pride, and you got to see yourself as nothing, and, and, and you got to agree with the Holy Spirit to keep cultivating and, and purging yourself of all these things. But man, my spiritual gift, hey, let's go. Let's go. You see, here's the thing, Brother Allen. And pastor, did you know I've seen men and their spiritual gift was way up here. They get invited to national conferences here and yonder, but their spirituality was way down here. I booked a man to come preach in my church one time years ago, a name brand preacher. And I was telling a fellow pastor, man, guess who I've got coming to preach a meeting for me? And I called his name. He said, oh, he's a preacher. And you'll like him if you can stand his dirty jokes. And sure enough, he came and we were sitting at a restaurant and walked out and he told a joke that was not good and bellered it out on the sidewalk. I said, man, man, I got this small town. I got to live here. Don't, don't say that word here. His spiritual gift was way up here. His spirituality was way down here. But then I've known preachers whose spiritual gift was way down here. Uh, They'll probably never get invited to speak at your uh, 
retreat, your marriage retreat. They're not colorful. But their spiritual gifts way down here. But their spirituality is way up here. They walk with God. They, they pastor a little church way up in the mountains across the foot log over there on the side of the hill. They don't have a 25 or 30, but they've been working at it and knocking on doors and, and winning them. It would take a family a year to get, get saved and get in where it's so sparsely populated. I, I mean, you know, they have to pipe the sunshine in and the moonshine out, you know, I'm talking about, and been faithful and his spirituality is way up here. My spirituality should be at least as high as my spiritual gift. But since this is easy and this is hard, it's easy to neglect this. It's easy to say, Lord, I haven't been prayed as much as I used to. But Lord, they still invited me to preach in that big marriage conference. But Lord, and I'm still sinking, Lord, you know, I, I I don't read my Bible as much as I used to. And Lord, you know, but people are still being saved. Man got saved here this morning that they'd been witnessing to for a long time. Tried to win him, couldn't. He, got, he raised his hand and got born again right here in this service, whether you know it or not. And here's what I'm saying. I'm saying um, people are still being saved. People are still being blessed. The invitation still come. Lord, I couldn't be but so bad because look how God is using me. Look at this. Let me tell you something. I spend most of my time working on my spirituality. I Listen, do you know how much time I've spent preparing this message for tonight? I didn't even know I was going to preach it 10 minutes before they called on me to preach. I'd preached it before. I knew how to preach it. I just plug into it, right? But how much time have I spent preparing myself spiritually today? Well, my wife knows, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to be a Pharisee, but I will tell you this. It's a whole lot more working on my spirituality than my spiritual gift. Kenny Graham came to me some years ago, and Kenny Graham said this. He said, Pastor, he said, there's a great man of God. I found out later who it was. That man of God was so great that when I had a nationally known speaker cancel on me, I called this great man of God. He drove to my church and preached under a big tent. And when he got done, nobody but nobody was sad. The other big name preacher couldn't come. We had revival. It was a blessed thing. Now watch this. He said, I went to him. The guy was, had built a church to 1,500. He said, I went to him. And I said, brother, look, Kenny telling me that he went to this man and he said, uh, brother, you know, I've emulated you all these years, the power with which you preach and the way that you can communicate and reach people. And uh, a pastor, uh, you know, I have a devotional time. I have a personal time every day that I walk with God, but I'm not happy with it. I don't feel I'm drawing from my personal spiritual walk that which I need to draw. And he said, Pastor, ask this other man, this great preacher. He said, what do you do in your personal devotion time? Maybe you can help me. And Kenny Graham told me, he said, he dropped his head. And he said, Kenny, I know what you're talking about. Son, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. But Kenny, you don't understand. We're in the midst of a building program. My phone's ringing at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's still ringing at 1030 at night. And honestly, Kenny... I haven't had time for it lately. He got too busy 
to have that spiritual time with boys, oh, gifts and boys, gifts, building buildings and reaching people and, and growth. But his spiritual spirituality was neglected. And then Kenny looked at me with sad eyes and he said, Pastor Brown, need I tell you that man is not in the ministry today? And need I tell you he's not with his wife either? And that's the last we heard of him. Because spiritual gifts is easy and spirituality is hard. Look, I don't read books by charismatics, but somebody read a book by Jim Baker uh, and the title of the book was I Was Wrong. You know, he messed up. And Jim Baker said this. Jim Baker said, when Tammy Faye and I started out, we were old line, four square Pentecostal. I mean, long dress. Uh, Tammy Faye couldn't cut her hair. If she cut her hair, she'd go to hell. She couldn't wear makeup. Can you imagine Tammy Faye Baker without makeup? Can you imagine? Did you know they got all the makeup off of Tammy Faye and, and chiseled it off? And when they got down to where her face actually was, guess what they found under there? Jimmy Hoffa. He's under there all the time. But anyway, I'm just saying. And, and, and he said Tammy Faye couldn't wear a sprig of makeup. No, she couldn't. And, but he, and he said, man, we prayed and God began to work. And I believe God does bless uh, people of other doctrines, though we don't agree with their doctrine. And he said the crowds were coming and the people were being blessed and people were being saved and said Tammy Faye would sing and I would sing and we'd watch God do great things but he said as the crowds came and grow now he told this himself I didn't read the book this is what I was told he said as the crowds came and began to grow said we had to do something to to be a little more interesting to just be a little more exciting so we just kind of jived the music up a little bit and and then Tammy Faye began to deck out a little more and then wear a little more makeup. And then we got the program. We had to have some high-powered singers in. And man, then finally we got the drums on the platform. And he said the crowds kept coming and we had to do more and more and more. And this is what he said in his own book. He said it wasn't long till the emphasis was not on God and glorifying him and praising his name and magnifying him with the work. The emphasis was on the method. And he said there was my downfall. The devil is a sly old fox. If I could catch him, I'd put him in a box and lock the door and throw away the key. For all those tricks that he's played on me, are you plugged into your spiritual gift? Are you plugged into your spirituality? How about it? How about it? Um, This explains Samson. Samson had the power of God on him. You know he did. There is not one verse in this King James Bible that even hints that Samson had any more physical muscles than I've got. And you can believe me when I tell you that's not much. I mean, Samson, for all we know, he was a runt. We don't know any different. There was no indication that by physical strength he ever did anything. When you come out of a city like he did and the, the gates of the city weigh a ton, 2,000 pounds, that don't count the bars and that don't count the fact that the bars are planted deep in the ground and you walk up to the gate, lock gate, and reach and get it and pull it up, bars and all, and put it on your back that never made a man on planet Earth that could do that. The world's records don't come near that. That was God's power. I mean, when the lion came out and roared against him, he just killed that lion like a lamb, threw it aside. They never made a man on planet Earth that could handle a lion roaring against him. 
That was the power of God. That was the power of God. He had it. And when he came out of that city, he, he lifted those bars out and those, uh, those Philistines lay up on the top of the hill and they saw, they were waiting to kill him. And when they saw him do that, one of them, I can picture one of them saying to the other, I think mama wants me at home. That's what I think. I, I really think it's time to go home. And buddy, they were scared to death. They scared them to death. He had the power of God and the, he used the power of God. And God's power was on him, and that was the gift God gave him. You know, when he pulled that gate out of the ground, bars and all, right after he got up from a bed, spending the night with a harlot? Yeah. His spiritual gift was running at an all-time high. His spirituality was running at an all-time low. The great Elijah, pray down the power of God. I mean, pray down the power of God and the fire come down and lap up the sacrifice, the altar and everything like that. Now watch it, watch it, watch it. Don't miss it. And now he's down under the juniper tree wishing for himself that he might die. He said, Lord, you got to show me yourself. You got to show up. You got to, I got to have God. I want the power back. I want, and all of a sudden there was an earthquake. And man, he ran up, glory to God. Lord, it's about time you showed up. Hallelujah, the earthquake. But God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a mighty wind blowing through and God was not in the wind. But then a still, sweet, small voice. That was that inner personal contact he had with God and he lost it. With the great gift God had given him, he lost it. I'm speaking to people all over this room. You can be running at an all-time high in your spiritual gift and be running at an all-time high. Somebody said one time, Brother Brown, are you trying to get in the hall of fame? I said, heaven no, Betsy. I'm just trying to stay out of the hall of shame. Amen. I'm just trying to, look, I'm I'm not worried about this. I'm way overrated by some people like your pastor and the monstrous things he said about me. But, but I'm telling you what, hey, I'm not concerned with that, the, my spiritual gift. I'm concerned with my spiritual gift. I'm not concerned with what he can see. I'm concerned with what God can see. That's what I'm concerned with. And by the way, don't ever forget this principle. I'm talking about a man in America that pastored a monstrous church and many of you will know who I'm talking about having big conferences every year. And uh, I mean, doing great mission programs that had never been done before in the church, organizing teams around the world. And they caught him messing with an underage teenage girl. He was 51 years old. And a young preacher called me and he said, Brother Brown, what am I going to do? I said, what's your problem? He said, my hero fell. My hero fell. I said, well, brother, it's always sad to me when any man of God falls, but my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If the whole world falls, my Savior will not fall. Jesus never fails. Yeah. Homer Massey, his sermons were in the sword of the Lord many times. Great preacher of days gone by. Homer Massey told this story about his daddy in the horse and buggy days going to town early one morning about an hour before daylight. And Jake, his hired man, was driving the wagon. And, he, and Brother Massey said my daddy was asleep in the old rut 
roads. He said his head was wobbling. Better you learn to sleep with anything. And he said, all of a sudden, the wagon stopped. And Brother Massey woke up. And when he woke up, he heard somebody crying out to God. And he got up and looked out the front of the wagon. And, and Jake had got down in the ditch and both hands were in the air and he was crying out to God, Oh, God, have mercy, God. He said, Mr. Bass said, Hey, Jake. He said, Yes. He said, What's the problem? He said, The judgment of the great God has come. He said, What makes you think so? What had happened, he'd seen a meteor shower. You know, he'd seen a bunch of stars shooting all at one time. Well, he thought that was the end of the world. He thought, he thought that, that, you know, that it was doomsday. It's going to come. And Mr. Master said, hey, Jake, come up here. I want to show you something. Jake came over and stood by the wagon. He said, <clears throat> I want to show you something now. Do you see that biggest star right up there? He said, you mean that one gleaming more than the other? He said, yeah, that, that one, that biggest star. He said, yes, sir, I sure do. He said, do you know what that's called, Jake? He said, I have no idea. He said, that's called the bright and morning star. He said, I'll tell you what I will do, Jake. I'm going on back to sleep, and you drive the wagon and keep your eye on that star. And when that one falls, wake me up again. <laughs> Amen. When that one falls, brother, you keep your eye on the, on the bright and morning star. You keep your eye on he who was God enrobed in human flesh. You set your sails and your confidence and your anchor in Christ. And when he fails, call, call me, give me a ring. <laughs> Give me a ring. Friend, let me tell you something. I'm just simply saying, are you plugged into people? Or are you plugged into God? Are you plugged into spiritual gifts? Or are you plugged into spirituality? Are you plugged into God? Or are you plugged into a false profession? Matthew 7, 21 says this, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, uh, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me. Here are people that cast out devils. You say, how do you know they did? The Lord didn't rebuke them. The Lord didn't call them liars. They said, in thy name. And they're standing before God Almighty and said, God, is it not true? that we cast out devils. Is it not true that we've done many wonderful works? The Lord never denied them. He never denied that, but here's what he said. And he said, then will I profess unto them, I didn't know you. You were not one of my children. You were not born again. Are you connected in a born again salvation experience with the Lord? I didn't ask you if you joined the church or got baptized or if you can sing or if you can teach or if you can be a bus captain or if you can be an usher in the church or if you keep the nursery uh, or if you, whatever you do. I didn't ask you. I didn't ask you if you dress right, act right, talk right, go to all the right places, stay away from all the wrong places. I didn't ask you that. I asked you this. Are you plugged into God? Are you plugged into a false profession? Years ago, during the days of train travel, <clears throat> a man who traveled with trains commonly every week had a friend that ne had never ridden a train. So he took this friend down to the uh, train depot, and they were going to take a trip together. The first trip this friend had ever taken. And so as this man walked up there, there somebody had stuck up a sign that says, please wait for the conductor before boarding the train. 
Well, this egotistical fellow who travel trains every week turned to his friend and he said, they put these signs up here for people that don't know anything. I travel all the all the time. And uh, so you and I can get, go ahead and get on the train. It's okay. They won't care. So they stepped up on the car and they were sitting there all alone. Well, in a little bit, the conductor came and he stepped up on the car and he said, fellas, I hate to inconvenience you, but you're going to have to get out of uh, get off of this car and get on the one right in front of it. And this egotistical fellow, embarrassed in front of his friend, says, Mr. Conductor, may I ask you a question? He says, you certainly may. He said, and this car is nice as the one up, up ahead of us. He said, you know it is? He said, and this car decorated as nice as the one in front of it. He said, you know it is. He said, in this car, in the service on this car, as good as the car in front of it. He said, you know you got a real good point. He said, well, would you please tell me why we're required to get off of this car and get on the one right in front of it? And with a slight grin, the conductor said, because, sir, this car's not connected to anything going anywhere. (laughs) Isn't my religion as good as yours? Matter of fact, some lost people live better than some Christian people. You know that's a fact. You know that's a fact. You have to admit that if you're honest. Don't, don't, don't I pray like you pray? I'm going to tell you, some of these Muslims, I mean, three times a day, they blow the... I was in Israel, and you know, and they're all going to pray five o'clock in the morning, and then at noon and night, and public prayer, and stopping everything, and business to pray. I mean, look, don't I pray as much? You may pray a whole lot more than I do. You may do a whole lot more than I do. Many wonderful works. But are you plugged into God? I was trapped into a false profession when I was 16 years old. I went forward in a church, an independent Baptist church, and a personal worker took me back to a prayer room, opened the Word of God, and showed me from the book of Romans how I could be saved. And I knew it. I'd heard it. And he came down to that verse, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said, would you like to be saved? I said, more than anything in this world, I'd like to be saved. He said, well, what would you be willing to pray and ask the Lord to save you? I said, I would. He said, let's pray. And I prayed and I said, Lord, come into my heart and save me. And I was feeling this all the time. I was feeling, okay, it's going to hit me. I know, boy, I'm, I, it's going to hit me. I know it's going to hit me. But it didn't hit me. And I finished the prayer. He said, did you mean that when you prayed? I said, yes, sir. And I did mean it. He said, this verse says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? If I only had not lied to him. If I'd only been honest with him and said, no, I I did pray it and I did mean it, but I'm not saved. And I went another two years, even went to Bible college. I knew I wasn't saved. I never doubted my salvation. knew I didn't have any salvation. I knew the truth. I knew too much gospel. I'd heard too much. And I'm laying on my bed three days after I arrived. I'm not sure we'd even gone through registration. Three days after I arrived, Independent Baptist College, Piedmont Bible College, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and nearly 57 years ago. And I'm laying on my bed... And I said to myself, this goes along with talk to yourself. I said to myself, Brown, you know what you're going to do. And I said back to myself, no, what am I going to do? 
And I said to myself, Brown, you're going to keep fooling around and die and go to hell, and every preacher in this country is going to preach you right into heaven, but you're going to be burning in hell. And I said, devil, I'm not going to do it. And I sat straight up in my bed. And I said, buddy, get up. Buddy Turner was his name, my roommate. He got up and went wild-eyed and looked around. He said, what's the problem? I said, I'm lost. He said, what do you mean you're lost? I said, I'm lost. He said, what kind of lost? I said, the kind of lost where you die, you go to hell. That's the kind of lost. Oh, Larry, you're not lost. Maybe you're doubting your salvation. And he quoted back to me the same plan of salvation I'd heard two years before. And he got down to Romans 10, 13 and said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And my inside, I remember thinking, Lord, I did call on you. I did ask you to save me. And for the first time in my life, right at that moment, the light came on. Here's what the light, when the light came on, here's what I saw. God didn't say, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and have a good feeling shall be saved. God didn't say, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and feel a chill go up and down his back shall be saved. God didn't say, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and say, shall be saved. Well, woke up some of you on that one, didn't I? I mean, God didn't say that. God just simply said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And for the first time in my life, I looked at that and I said, well, I'll just accept what God said. And right then and there, I was born again. I got assurance of salvation just based on the naked promise of God that he'd do what he said he would do. And I didn't feel anything and I didn't have an emotional experience. Now, three days later, I did. Man, I was blessed with joy like beyond compare. But I had to come to the point that I realized it's just taking God at his word. It's not an experience. It's a faith. It's a belief in what God said in his word. Are you plugged into your Sunday? I was teaching Sunday school, singing in church, singing in the choir, preaching. Preached in Dan River Church one night. I was 16 years old and I preached and a 16-year-old girl came down the aisle bawling and says, I want you to be saved. I said, somebody show this girl how to be saved. The reason I said that, I, didn't, I wouldn't save myself. I knew it. Because I was plugged into, actually I was plugged into a spiritual gift I believe God called me to preach years before I was born through a prayer of my daddy, and I don't have time to explain all that. I'm going to confuse you here now. But but I'll tell you this. I always wanted to preach. I always loved to preach. I preached in high school. I was lost. You call my sister. She's still living. She'll say, anytime Larry got a chance to speak, he's preaching about something in school, public school. But I knew in my heart I'd never trusted the Lord. But on September the 5th, 1964, about 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, sitting on the edge of my bedroom, 4 dormitory, 426 on Green Street, Piedmont Bible College, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I put my faith and trust in Jesus and I got born again. And I know I'm saved, saved, saved. I'm saved. Thank God I am saved. I tell you what, I Pastor, I don't have a dime's worth of respect for any preacher that would come into your church and try to confuse your people about salvation. And some of them will do it. And I don't think they're honest about it. But at the same time, you can get trapped into a false profession. And you don't know where to turn around. And you need to say, am I plugged into Jesus or am I just plugged into a false profession in the church? I got a preacher friend, pastor of a very large church. 
The church had grown over a period of years and hundreds, yea, thousands of people had been saved. And on a Sunday morning, the crowd was there and the building was packed and he was preaching and the power of God came down and the altars were filled and people were streaming down the aisle to be saved and they were finding uh, personal workers and he said, I looked down, my wife was standing right in the front of the pulpit looking up and I thought she was going to tell me about some woman or some, uh, hand me some decision cards or something. He said, I leaned over the pulpit and said, honey, uh, what do you need? She looked up at him and said, Bob, I am not going to hell for you or nobody else. He said, What? She said, I said, I'm not going to hell for you or nobody else. He said, what are you talking about? She said, Bob, I've never been saved. I've served here in the church. I've worked in the church. I've been your wife. I've seen all the miracles of God, but I have never been saved. He said, never in my life was a speechless till then. He said, never in my life did it actually blow my mind on what anybody said to me till then. He said, I, I just, I want to go. Blah, 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 blah. He said, I looked at her and said, well, he said, I didn't know what to say to her. I just said, well, get down there and get saved then. Amen. And she did. She got out there and got saved. There could be somebody in this room a hundred years from tonight. You say, what would people think? What would people think if I go down there and get saved as a preacher's child or deacon's child or a Sunday school teacher or a choir member? Or What would people think? I got news for you. One hundred years from tonight, it is not going to matter one iota of what anybody thought about what you did here tonight. In the first place, people are not near as excited about what you do as you think they are. I mean, good night. If my wife came forward and got saved tonight, if she came and said, Larry, I've never been saved. If she came forward and got saved, well, after service, you'd hug her and come down. Well, I'm glad you got this settled. And there'd be a little talk going home. Say, okay, now let's go down to Dairy Queen, get a big Sunday, you know. I mean, people aren't as interested as you think about what you do personally. But a hundred years from night when you're screaming in the pit of hell, and you look back and you realize God spoke to me that night and I need to get it settled, then you better come. You better come. Where are you plugged in? Let's bow.